chapter 2 and chapter 3. There are a lot of different, uh, well, let me just say it like this. There's no shortage of great texts to be able to use on Father's Day. And there's really a great uh, selection of, of godly men um, who invested their life and, and left a positive example, a positive role model, uh, were a positive role model, left a godly legacy to their children. And there, there's no shortage of those things to be able to choose from, just to preach about um, during this special day, um, as we also recognize, recognize um, fathers. But I didn't want this morning to use the best example. I know oftentimes we throw that example up there and we say this is how we should live. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's called instruction. That's called exhortation um, from my end. But I wanted to use a different story this morning. I wanted to use a story of a dad who did not take seriously an issue that was going on in the lives of his children. And, and I, I warn you um, that the, 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 the previous example I told you of the positive father, of the good example where we walk out with a warm, fuzzy feeling, that, that that's probably not going to be the case this morning in this message. This doesn't leave us with a warm, fuzzy feeling as in regards to fatherhood. But it does impress upon us the burden of understanding what right is and using that understanding, kind of like in the, in the video, the understanding of where true north is and doing our very best to mold and to train and to lead and to guide those children in that direction. And it also speaks honestly about real consequences that come as a result for neglecting the awesome privilege of godly fatherhood. I want you to... Let me give you just a brief background of what's taking place in 1 Samuel chapter 2 uh, and chapter 3. There is a man named Eli, and Eli is a priest and a judge. This is set in the time of Israel's history where there is, it, it's right on the tail end of the judges. I had an instructor in school one time that referred to the book of Judges as the armpit of the Bible, and... He was dead on. I mean, the, the judges records uh, the, the God's people going into sin and, and taking a, a serious chastening and, and stepping out of it, but then entering right back into it. It's a, kind of a gloomy book. Although God is continuing to be faithful, it, it records well the unfaithfulness of God's people and the immorality that was taking place. And Eli finds himself at the tail end here of the judges, and he has two kids. For this morning, let me just refer to those two boys as preacher's kids, okay? I say that and you guys laugh because you know all about preacher's kids. Don't think for a moment, as I was preparing for this, that I didn't think of my two boys as well. It was a little close to home. But his two boys also are serving in the capacity of priest. They are there to observe and oversee and make petitions and prayers over the various offerings and sacrifices that are made in the tabernacle of meeting. And then uh, they get caught up in some things, as, as probably you had in your mind when I said preacher's kids. These guys did not walk uh, in the way that they should. The Bible records some pretty heinous activity going on with these two preacher's kids at the tabernacle of meeting. We're going to document those in just a minute or look over them. But God says something to their dad. 
there, there's not a record here where God spoke to the boys. I, I, he may have, I don't know, but it's not recorded. But there is a record where God communicated with their dad, Eli, three times. Once through all the people who were in the city seeing the things that were being done by these two kids. All these people are coming to Eli and speaking to him about the actions of his sons. And then God sends a man who we only know in the Scripture is called the man of God. And the man of God comes to Eli and says the same thing. He knows exactly what's going on and he approaches Eli about it to do something. And then the third and final one is young Samuel, who was a child of Hannah. The promised blessing child of Hannah prophesies his first prophecy, speaking about the sin of Eli's two sons. And I want you to look with me for a moment. In chapter 2, verse number 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt, and they did not know God. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any of them offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Look down in verse 22, please. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people, no, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear of you. You make the Lord's people's transgress, sin. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because it says the Lord desired to kill them. Jump over to chapter 3 with me for just one moment to verse 13 as we catch the end of Samuel's prophecy. God says, for I have told him, him being Eli, that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Let me stop there. When I read to you out of chapter 2 where it says they did not heed the voice of the Lord or of their father because the Lord desired to kill them, some have suggested that the better translation on that rather than the word because is therefore. That because of their hardness of heart, uh, that that was a result that the Lord was going to discipline them for these particular acts. Let me get that straight. He was going to judge them for those actions that they were committing. But let me just say first, before many of you say, well, wait a second. Why would God not allow them to repent? Why would God move in such a way as to where they would not do what is right? Well, we know, first of all, it's God's desire that we would live righteous, holy lives, especially those of the priesthood 
that he had in that day. We know that it was not God's desire to harden someone's heart so they would not do what was right. God loved, God loved all of us to do what was right, including Hophni and Phinehas. He wanted them to do what was right, and there's no, there's no way that we could think God was hardening their heart for the purpose of destroying them. If that was the case, if God, let's just play for a moment, if that was the case and God was truly wanting to just kill those sons and had hardened their heart or shut their ears to the point that they wouldn't hear because God was not allowing them to hear, then why would he deal so harshly with Eli? Why would he judge Eli so harshly if there was nothing that God would have allowed Eli to do in that situation? It does appear that the word therefore seems to fit much better as we understand the character and the nature of God as we understand and come to grips with the free will that he's given us to choose to do what is right or to do what is wrong. But I want to show you the first thing this morning as we move through this passage, this story. First was there was a serious issue with the sons. A serious issue with the sons. Parents, have you ever had serious issues with your children? You know what? That was for this place. That was a raucous amen. we've all had serious issues with our kids it's just the varying degrees of how serious they are it's funny that you know for me with my oldest being five and my 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 youngest being four months well we don't have serious issues really usually the serious issue with the four months kind of revolves around a diaper and that's not really her fault but the three-year-old and the five-year-old we get serious issues and granted they're not really on the scale maybe of if they were 13 or 15 But we all get to that point where we realize, you know what, I have to train, I have to teach my kids how to do what's right. You know, if if for those people that think that we are not born with a sin nature, they must not have ever had children. Have you, I mean, I'm being really serious. I'm being really serious. You have to train and teach your children how to do what's right. How to teach them how to do good. You don't have to teach them how to do what's wrong, do you? They know it. It's that sin nature that is a part of who we are. It is our flesh. It is our job and our responsibility to counteract that and to teach them and to train them and to mold them into the people that God desires and deserves for them to be. And Eli, here's something. Two things really took place. The issue with the flesh hook and the meat and them taking meat by force We may not really be able to wrap our minds all the way around that. So let me just give you kind of a brief little commentary of what that reflects about those two boys. About Preacher's Kid A and Preacher's Kid B. The law required a piece of meat to be given to the priest. They called it the wing meat or the breast meat. And the right shoulder was typically given. So you had the breast meat of the sacrifices or in this case the peace offering, that breast meat and the right shoulder was typically what was given to the priest. These boys did not want the wing meat and the right shoulder anymore. They wanted the ribeye. They wanted the sirloin. They wanted the best of the best. They wanted the choicest cuts. They no longer wanted this piece and this piece. They would come to the people as they're offering, as they're making their peace offerings, and they're saying, hey, wait a second. We don't want it boiled. We want to go fire up the grill and put it on there ourselves. We know how we like it. And we don't just want this. and that. We want, we want the good stuff. 
So start giving us the good stuff. You know what the problem was? They had taken, they had lost sight of what the sacrifice was truly about. The sacrifice wasn't about the people giving them meat. The sacrifice wasn't a big meat tray that was to be given to the people. The sacrifice was to be an act of worship and reverence to the Lord. And these boys had gotten into the place where they're like, well, there's all this meat. Let's get the best of the best. Now, that wasn't the only thing that they were doing. The Bible says that they were laying with the women at the, that met at the tabernacle door. These were women who that was part of their service. This, this was a group of women that were, were understood to be very devout, very God-fearing. They loved the Lord, and that was part of their service. Spending time at the tabernacle of meeting in that day and praying and offering up, doing all they could to glorify God. And here come preachers kid A and preachers kid B, no doubt in this place of, of, of this position they had, and they used it, used their position. Not just to get the choicest cuts of meat, but to engage in sexual immorality at the tabernacle door. One of the boys' names was Phineas. Just to let you know how serious of an issue this is. Before this Phineas came onto the scene, there was another Phineas. And the Israelite men were taking women from the countries around them. And they were going into the tabernacle of meeting and laying with them. And a man named Phineas, not the same Phineas, but a previous one, probably the one in whom this man got his name from. That Phineas ran into the tabernacle of meeting, realizing what an egregious sin this was in the very face and the presence, what an affront it was to the holiness of God and the worship of the people. And the previous Phineas ran in, took a spear, and stabbed them both through in the tabernacle and was hailed as a hero. And brought blessing on his life for turning away that judgment and chastening of God because of the act that the people were doing. The first Phineas stopped it. The second Phineas engaged in it. These men were not just demanding the best cuts of the peace offering, sexual immorality. If you notice the first verses I read to you, it said they were corrupt and did not know God. They were considered evil and vile. That's how their description, that's how the Bible describes their activity. Corrupt, vile, and evil. And these are Eli's kids. A serious, serious issue for the Israelite men to do that with Moabite women and, and other women around the region and for them to be killed in the tabernacle, and the man who did it to be hailed a hero. And these men are priests engaging in this activity in a place set apart and designated for the holiness of God. Let me tell you this. These men were living unstrained lives, living for the flesh, using their position, using their power, forgetting about God, disregarding His Word. Friends, this was a very serious situation. The second thing is that this, well, not the second thing yet, sorry. It had serious fallout. I would love to tell you that their actions were just contained and, and it didn't cause much damage to the name of, the, of God or the image of God or how people thought of God, but that's not the case. 
As we read previously in chapter 2, their actions as priests and what they were doing, living these unrestrained lives, seeking to get all of the best meat and, and laying with these women in the tabernacle, it caused people, it caused all Israel, the Bible says, to turn and to abhor or despise the offerings of the Lord. Those people had gotten to the place, seeing what those kids were doing, had gotten to the point where they turned their back on their own offerings. They would not offer, they did not have a right heart in offering it, which was a direct reflection of their worship to the Lord. These boys became an incredible stumbling block to the entire nation because of their unrestrained lives, using their position to maximize their own ends. I want you to see how Eli handled it which is really the heart of the message. The issue, second thing this morning, serious issue, was not met with the same degree of seriousness by the Father. Bad deal. Bad deal. These boys should have been kicked out of the priesthood. These boys should have been disciplined harshly according to the word. Their dad should have brought the thunder and the lightning down on these boys for what they were doing in the name of God. And yet, you know what he did? He called a family meeting. He set them down. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear you make the Lord's people transgress. Such a serious issue. Driving people away from the very heart of God disrespecting the, 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 the basis of offering and sacrifice, misusing their position as ministers of the Lord. And their dad comes to them, sets them down in the living room, and literally shakes the finger at them and says, you shouldn't do that. Let me ask you, do you think that was effective? No. Not at all. In fact, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 13, Samuel's first prophecy. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. Such a serious offense, such serious accusations with serious fallout, and all, Samuel, all Eli does is go to them and say, nope, you shouldn't do it. That's wrong. Pointing the finger, shaking it. Why did he do that? Why didn't Eli, the, the judge, the, the, the priest, why didn't this man who knew what was right and wrong, knew what the word said, knew the real way that he should have handled it, understanding the degree to which this sin had risen, why did he not go to them and become more harsh in his discipline, I think the Bible gives us an indication. It's found in chapter 2. When the man of God, the second person who comes to speak with him about his sin, he says that, excuse me, verse 29, chapter 2, verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I've commanded in my dwelling place? God is saying, why are you making such little of my offering? Why do you think so little of an offering that is to be given to me 
in my dwelling place? And why do you honor your sons more than me? Let me say that one more time. Why do you honor your sons more than me? To make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel. My people. I think there are two reasons at least. The scriptures hint at. Of why Eli didn't do more. In disciplining his son and making sure they did the right thing and repented of that sin. And one is clearly. He was honoring them. More than he was honoring God. It seems as though what God is saying is you care more about what your kids think. Than what I think. Or let me put it like this. It seems as though what God is saying is you care more about what your kids think about you. Than what I, God, think about you. You care more about them. You have taken me who is supposed to be the central figure. The ultimate relationship in your life. And you have taken me down. Placed me over here. Grabbed your two boys. And placed you not equal with God. Not on the same level. But over God. Why do you honor your sons, he says, more than me? Friends, let me tell you, there is a serious epidemic. As parents, we can fall into that trap so easily that especially as a dad, where I can adopt that worldly mindset that I would much rather be my son's friend than be my son's father. There is this idea in the world There is this challenge, this temptation for me as a dad and maybe for you as a parent as well to strive to make it my life's ambition to make my kids happy rather than holy. God hasn't called me to make my kids happy. He hasn't called me to, make, to, to live a life where they are my best friend and I have the relationship with them that is more important and more special than God. What God is saying, what God teaches us as, as parents, what God teaches us in our relationships is that our relationship to God personally is the most important relationship. I don't care how many kids you have. I don't care how great your husband or your wife is. The most vital relationship in your home is your relationship to your Heavenly Father. You know why I say that? I'm not just saying that because I'm a preacher and you think I should say that. When God set up the family, He instituted government, He instituted the church, and he instituted the family. And in all of those institutions that God set up, he placed within them a structure of leadership. In the government, we have kings. We're to submit and to pray for those kings and those who are in authority. In the church, there's a structure. There is a pastor who is called to be the under-shepherd of the people. But you know what? Those kings are still under subject to God. The, the, The pastor is still under submission to God or is to be. And it's no different in the family. God gave the family the structure. 
we see the leadership of that structure is the husband, the father, in which the burden of that primary responsibility falls, and he has to answer to God. You know how the husband is to run his home? He's to love his wife. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How is the wife to, to, to love her husband? She is to see that she reverences and honors her husband. How? As unto the Lord. You remove that relationship with the Lord out of that relationship. You lose the pattern of what it is to be a godly father or a godly mother. In that same scripture in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. The apostle Paul tells those fathers to not provoke your children to wrath. The responsibility of the father to the children is this. Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the fear and admonition or training of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. After God had shared the law, his instruction with his people, he said, I want you to teach these to your children. When you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk, when you sleep, In every area, every avenue, every arena of life, I want you to be teaching and communicating, pouring into and impressing this, these words upon your children. Unfortunately, we see all too often where so many more things have become important to parents than the training and admonition of the Lord. Sometimes we substitute our primary responsibility as parents off to somebody else. We sub it out. We think it is the church's responsibility to be the primary teacher of my children, and that is not so. Friends, let me just tell you, if it is the church's responsibility to be the primary teacher of your children, we have them at most for two to three hours a week. Two to three hours a week. You know what? Statistically, your children watch more television in their lifetime, four times more television in their lifetime than they will spend in church. You really want to sub out to the church? the primary responsibility when they get at most three hours a week with us? No. We are a supplemental. We reinforce what you teach them at home. As a church, we equip you to teach them. You have that relationship. You have that responsibility. You have that authority. We help. Don't sub it out. The first thing, the first problem was that it appears he wanted them to be his friends more than he was wanting to be their dad. He wanted them to have a good time on the trip rather than being a good guide and keeping them safe. He wanted them to be happy rather than being holy. But there is a second which this scripture lends itself to an interpretation. Notice what it said in chapter 2. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and offering which I command in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me? Listen. To make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. It appears as though God is not just accusing the boys, but it seems as though he has brought Eli the dad in on this. Why do you make yourselves fat? Please, please hear what I'm about to say. When Eli dies in the next chapter, He hears that his sons have died as the Philistines came and took the ark. Both of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died on the same day. When the messenger comes back and tells Eli, 
Eli hears that the ark has been taken by the Philistines. And he hears that his boys are dead. He falls back in his chair and breaks his neck and dies. There's an interesting commentary given in regards to the death of Eli. And it says that he was very big or large or obese. Let me just ask you a quick question. With chapter 2, verse 29, with God saying, why do you make yourselves fat off of the sacrifices? In that commentary on the on the build of Eli, I almost get the impression that maybe one of the reasons Eli didn't talk to his boys about how they were talk to them more forcefully did not handle the did not remove them from the priesthood and why he only spoke was because there's a chance maybe he was doing the same thing with the offerings parents have you ever found it's difficult to discipline your children for something that you yourself are doing do you ever find yourself telling your children not to do something while on the other hand you know good and well that they've watched you do it? You know, I walk into my house. This is probably not the best example. But I walk into my house and I've got my boots on. And I've realized that one of the first things I tell my sons is to take your shoes off while I walk through the house in my boots. You may think that that's a horrible example. But you know we do it in so many other ways. We tell our children things that they're not to do. And we laugh about it when they say, oh, well, Dad, you do that. We laugh about it and we give the most worst description ever. We, give, we say this awful thing coming out of our mouth. We say, do what I say, not what I do. You know what you've just done? By telling your child to do what I say and not what I do, you have effectively taught a child how to, how to grow up and teach his kid how to be a hypocrite. It's the truth. Do what I say, don't do what I do. Friends, we've got to do better. Let me ask you a question, Dad. If your children, and I've asked myself this question as well, if your children grew up and walk the exact same road as you. Doing the exact same things you've done. Or are doing the same things you're doing right now that maybe nobody else knows. Would you be pleased? Would God be pleased? There is a great need of godly fathers. Great, great need of godly parents. And we're never going to do it if we don't understand the priority. It's essential that I understand that my kid's spiritual welfare is a weight that is burdening me to the point that I understand the responsibility and I'm doing everything I can to redeem each moment for the glory of God. I cannot save them, but I can provide 
for them ample opportunity and ample information so that when they come to that place in their life, they can make a well-informed decision based not just off of the words from my mouth, but the example from my life. Our children's salvation Our children's dedication to the Lord, our children's future service should be the utmost priority for us because it is the utmost priority to God. Are we taking that relationship seriously? Are we taking our relationship with God seriously? Third and final thing, let me just say this really quick. You know what the consequences were? They all died. They all died. And fathers, let me tell you something. We are not just dealing with a physical death. We know that within each one of us is an eternal soul, and that soul can only spend somewhere. It's going to spend eternity somewhere. And there are only two places for that soul. It's heaven or hell. We are dealing with consequences in our neglect that go far beyond the physical death of a child, physical death of a family member. We're dealing with with eternal consequences. Beyond that, you know, there was another consequence. The people turned from the Lord. Turned away. Seeing the actions of those kids. You know what? I want this to be a church full of fathers that are godly, who are training their children to be godly. You know, I'm going to be really honest and selfish. I want godly families in here, so my son will also have another example, so God will be able to use your children to minister to my children. I'm selfish. I want my child to minister to yours as well. And the enemy gained a victory. Glory of the Lord in that ark had been removed. People were saddened, depressed. Ichabod had now been placed as their banner. The glory of the Lord had appeared, had departed. Because a father, a father did not take his role seriously. Yes, there are consequences. Dad, do you know the Lord personally? Do you know Christ? Because how are you ever going to lead your child or direct your child to Christ if you don't know Him yourself? Father, are there things going on in your life, in your heart? You may think your children don't know. You may think your children don't see. But let me tell you, kids are smart and they're getting smarter. We can only hide and masquerade for so long before the real us eventually pops out. Fathers, have you dealt with the sin in your life and in your heart? Fathers, have you placed that relationship, that priority of leading your children to Christ as that superior relationship? If not, let's get it right. Let's restructure our priorities. Let's put God where He deserves. I'm going to pray this morning. And right after I say amen, Jason is going to lead us in a time of response and prayer. And I believe that God is dealing with our hearts. Maybe you're a mother here. Maybe you're a father and you say, I've never had a good, a good role model in my life. You know what? You got one now. Your heavenly father is the perfect role model for earthly fatherhood. Whatever excuse it is, Eli could have said, I'm too old. My kids should know better. Whatever the case was, no excuse was good enough for that moment. It's our responsibility. Fathers, if you have a decision to make this morning, I'm going to give you a moment after I say amen. Mothers, you have a decision to make. Grandmothers, grandparents, whatever that decision is, you can make that today. Let's get right and get serious.
about parenting. God, you are so awesome. I thank you, Lord, that you are merciful, that you are kind, that you are good. I thank you, God, that when we look around and see horrible examples of how to be a godly father, all we need to do is open the pages of your scripture and see you. To look at how you love us, how you forgive us, how you treat us, how you give to us, how you move us towards that one goal of knowing yourself. Father, I pray this morning that we also as earthly fathers would share the same heart, that we would capture the same desire that you have for us. Lord, help us deal with sin, the hidden sin that no one knows, we think no one knows. Help us to make it our life's ambition to raise and to produce and to to manufacture to the best of our ability godly, soul-winning, kingdom-building children for your glory and for your honor. Lord, if there's a decision to be baptized this morning, I pray you would impress that on our hearts. Church membership, rededication, family prayer time, whatever that is, God, would you receive the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.